Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. In this podcast, Suzanne Nielsen shares her insights into safe injecting rooms, new psychoactive substances, drug testing, naloxone and pharmacists, and her research in substance use disorder and harm reduction. So I'm Suzanne Nielsen. I'm a professor and deputy director at the Monash Addiction Research Centre. Um, I'm also a pharmacist and have been a pharmacist for um, more than 20 years now. We can just leave it at that because I feel like after 20 years, you just start to feel quite old, right? Um, so, yes, I came into this field of addiction and substance use really from my exposure to um, people with, with drug problems um, in community pharmacy settings. Right. So um, can you describe a little bit more about substance use disorder and, um, and what people... Yeah, what people think about it and yeah. the stigmas around it. Right. So, yeah, so substance use disorder, you know, these things have technical definitions. And so in the DSM-5, um, this is really kind of a, uh, there's a combination of symptoms which include both, um, you know, for example, opioid use disorder, both physical withdrawal and tolerance, but also a whole range of behavioural symptoms. And those are really centering around uh, loss of control around a substance, using more than intended, continuing to use substances despite harm, those kind of behavioural aspects. So just being physically dependent on a drug doesn't mean that you have a substance use disorder. We know many people who take, for example, uh, opioids for chronic pain or benzodiazepines may have a withdrawal syndrome when they stop those drugs, but that on its own doesn't equal a substance use disorder or addiction as it's probably more commonly called it really is around those behavioural challenges where people are starting to have difficulty managing the amount of drugs that they're using or maybe may experiencing harms is probably also one of the key criteria and one of the reasons why we try and provide good treatment for substance use disorder because we want to minimise or reduce that harm as much as possible. There's a lot of stigma regarding um, substance use disorder can you talk to me a little bit about um, about the stigma for people receive, I guess, even when they get their medications yeah. and, and people's views on the disorder? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that even when I reflect on my own kind of growth as a, a pharmacist early on, when you come into the field and you start uh, working with people who use drugs, you often have very little exposure. Not everybody, you know, for example, has had uh, personal interactions with people who use drugs prior to becoming a pharmacist. Um, what we see in the media is really terrifying. I mean, if you think about, I don't know if you saw those campaigns around methamphetamine use, and they have images of people smashing up an emergency department with a chair. You know, when your only exposure to people who use drugs is these really kind of stereotyped and damaging and kind of marginalising images in the media... And you don't personally know people who have experienced substance use disorders, your perception of, of people can be really kind of skewed. And it's not surprising that we you know members of the community have these negative uh, perceptions or perceive people, you know, to be maybe threatening to them because that's all that they've been told. Um, when you actually start working with people with substance use disorder, you realize that there's a huge range of people 
who are affected by substance use disorder um, and that those stereotypes aren't particularly useful. Uh, you also realise that there's a large number of people who use drugs that don't have a substance use disorder. Not everyone who uses drugs needs treatment. Not everyone who uses drugs needs like a health response. Um, but often when we're working in sort of the treatment sector, and I've worked for a large part of my career as a specialist pharmacist in substance use clinics, um, you know, we only see people having real problems. And so then you can also assume that everybody who uses drugs experiences problems because they're the only people that you see clinically. Um, we also know language is really important. So while it's a little verbose, I tend to try and use terms like people who use drugs, people who inject drugs, because that person, first language, you know, that it is a person um, before everything else. And substance use shouldn't define people, but often it does. So, you know, we often hear this very pejorative language where the central feature of someone's presentation is the drug that they're using and, you know, terms that aren't particularly helpful, like addict. Um, trying to use language that reminds people on every occasion that first and foremost, we're responding to the needs of a person, I think is really important. So, um, yeah, often, you know, <laughs> I always find myself... Um, you know, for example, you know, editing manuscripts or, you know, responding to language um, where people have kind of said, oh, well, you know, it's better to write heroin music because it's quicker. And it's like, yes, it's quicker, but it's worth taking this extra few words and that extra time to be consistently using person first language because it does make a difference. There's actually uh, studies that have randomised people to see language which is stigmatising versus language like substance use disorder. And they've shown that the clinical care that people receive in hospital, for example, is different and is better if you use non-stigmatising language. Just those words on a page in a clinical record can affect the clinical care someone gets. So it is, it's important. It's not just words. It really is part of the treatment that people will receive. And... The guys said, um, how about harm reduction? Um, how, because you said you've been working in your specialist clinics for, so yeah. um, tell me a little bit about your experiences and harm reduction. Yeah, so harm reduction um, is defined as interventions that really aim to reduce the harm associated with drug use without actually aiming to reduce drug use per se. Um, and so often this is a little unfamiliar people with for people. But a really good example of harm reduction is seatbelts. So, you know, we're not saying don't drive a car. We're saying drive a car, but you wear your seatbelt, you're less likely to die if you get in an accident. So if we can think of, you know, or another common example from many, many years ago, I think, as in hundreds of years ago, I think in China, um, people who were intoxicated were falling in, in off, you know, off bridges and dying, drowning because they were intoxicated. And so they just put barriers on the bridges so people don't fall in, you know. So, so there are lots of things we can do to keep people safe that don't involve saying, you know, you cannot use drugs. It's a much more pragmatic approach. So we know things like providing clean needles for people if they're going to inject. Oh, sorry, sterile needles, I should say. Um, again, an example of language, not saying clean and dirty. Uh, but yeah, providing sterile injecting equipment. Um, that doesn't encourage people or discourage people from the use of drugs, but it means if they are going to use drugs, they're going to do it safely. And we know that minimising access to some of those harm reduction interventions doesn't stop people using drugs. If people are going to use drugs, they're going to use drugs. And what we can do is mean that they maybe will use them more safely. 
Um, in the long term, we can offer interventions like treatment and where people are ready to enter treatment, that will also help reduce drugs and reduce harm. Um, but there's this real idea of meeting people where they're at with what they need today, and that might just be providing information, providing clean syringes, I said it again, <laughs> providing <laughs> sterile injecting equipment, you know, and providing it in a non-judgmental way. And also we know that that rapport that people build with um, healthcare professionals, including pharmacists, when they receive that non-judgmental care, that can make a difference. So, for example, we know um, places like the medically supervised injecting rooms, they provide harm reduction. They don't try and directly reduce people's drug use. But we know that when people use those services and they develop relationships over time and develop rapport and trust um, from using these harm reduction services, that there's actually a really strong association with later treatment seeking from developing those relationships, from having that trusted source. And we know that pharmacists, for example, with those regular interactions with people where maybe initially they're not seeking care, that can help them say, oh, actually, maybe going to a pharmacy for methadone or buprenorphine wouldn't be so bad, you know. So it is. it does make a difference even if you're not directly trying to reduce drug use. And I think we also need to be a little pragmatic in accepting that Drug use is a part of our society. It has always been a part of our society. And a lot, a lot of these very prohibitionist approaches tend to actually increase harm for many people and often our most, most vulnerable people. So um, I believe you're doing some research um, called EPIC regarding um, pharmacists and um, their interventions with the methadone giving out to patients. So I wanted yeah. to find out a little bit more about your research. Yeah, so the epic METOD <laughs> trial is a trial. Um, it stands for Enhancing Pharmacist Involvement in Care um, with METOD, which is Medication-Assisted Treatment for Opioid Dependence. Um, what the study involves is collaborative care. We're actually having pharmacists um, taking on a broader role in terms of um, support and so treatment oversight with methadone and buprenorphine. So it's not independent prescribing of methadone and buprenorphine. There is still a prescriber involved. But what it's doing is in some ways formalising a lot of what pharmacists do every way, any day. So we know that pharmacists will often adjust doses. They'll often need to kind of oversee care. Um, but it's formalising and I guess in some ways providing a mechanism for that to happen. So um, the way that the treatment plan is developed is essentially you have a six-month treatment plan. The prescriber is communicated communicated to the pharmacist what the treatment goals are for the patient and also provided them a six-month prescription with a scope of what they can adjust and which things have been delegated to the pharmacist. And with it, within that treatment plan, the pharmacist can be sort of increasing or uh, decreasing doses, uh, adjusting the number of takeaways that a, that a patient might receive, uh, restarting a patient if they've um, stopped pharmacotherapy, sort of dropped out for a period of time, um, and also just overall monitoring um, care. So we know in the treatment guidelines, uh, in Victoria, for example, if someone's new in treatment, they need to be reviewed, I think, every two weeks initially. So that can happen in the pharmacy rather than having to go to uh, a doctor's clinic um, every two weeks. Um, it's particularly important where we're implementing the study, which is in the Frankston Mornington Peninsula, because we know that there are very few prescribers in that area and there's a very poor... Um, distribution of prescribers across the region. So by public transport, it takes patients um, up to two hours to get to the prescriber, the one area in Frankston where prescribers are. 
from other parts of the Frankston Mornington Peninsula. So, you know, often they live within a walking distance of their pharmacy. They can see their pharmacist every two weeks for those reviews uh, versus needing to sort of spend four hours round trip, you know, on public transport and the cost and time associated with that. Um, so, yeah, we're in the early stages of that. We've recruited um, a range of pharmacies. I think we've got um, four or five pharmacies actively recruiting patients at the moment. Um, and we're still recruiting uh, pharmacies in that study. Um, and the goal is really to collect data to demonstrate that um, pharmacists can take the, take on this role and also to develop um, data around the kind of the, the economic benefits of this kind of a model because we know to have things implemented in a long-term way, we've actually got to prove that not only it can be done but also that it's cost-effective. All right, so now I'm going to ask you about, I guess, a couple of topical things that you hear out of the middle. Let's ask those. So um, Richmond did have a um, safe um, a safe yeah, injection room. room. Yeah. So they had that. And I guess what I would be saying is it caused a lot of upheaval in the community when it first was discussed. Yeah. Um, what were your thoughts about how that was implemented and, and the community response and, and how it's going now? Yeah, look, it's a really challenging situation they have in North Richmond. Um, so I was working in the field long before that service was implemented. There was already an active street drug market in Richmond. I was already seeing my own clients who I was working with for pharmacotherapy, you know, in the front page of the Herald Sun, you know, being photographed injecting outside the same school where all that controversy has been based before that service was there. This was already an established issue. There was already kind of quite a large number of marginalised people in that region and a well-established street-based drug market. So while I'm very sympathetic to the idea that having a supervised injecting room so close to a primary school, for example, is challenging, those issues around sort of street-based injecting were actually very prevalent and possibly worse when there wasn't a safe service for people to be able to be out of sight and to be injecting in a safe way. Um, I know that there have been some very vocal residents, but there's also a lot of residents that really support the service. The evaluation of the service has actually found that many things have improved. Um, when they look at all of the crime indicators, the only indicator that had really um, changed around the presence of the injecting room was kind of possession offences and kind of where police are effectively, you know, <laughs> arresting people or or um, identifying drugs on people. And that's because that was really focused on because there was so much attention on it. And we know that drug possession offences, those kinds of police offences are actually a reflection of what the police are focusing on as opposed to the presence of drugs. But there's, you know, any evidence that there's increased kind of violent crime or, you know, robberies or house break-ins, there's no evidence that any of that has changed. In fact, there's good evidence that it hasn't changed through the evaluations. Um, but often what we hear in the media are very kind of negative stories. You know, they we have, you know, photos of people outside, you know, Everything kind of gets blown up and I think it gets forgotten that North Richmond had a really well-established street-based drug market prior to the service. The service was put there because that's where the area of need was um, and that we have lots of evidence, you know, more than 200 peer-reviewed papers worldwide on the effect of these services and consistently they show that it reduces um, issues in the community with kind of public injecting, it reduces discarding of injecting equipment, you know, reduces healthcare costs. It costs a lot to send an, an ambulance to an overdose. So real health economic benefits, reduced impact on the healthcare system. Consistently, all of these benefits have been shown both 
in Melbourne, in Sydney and elsewhere in the world. Um, so the evidence is very strong, but the opposition is very vocal. And I think that's often around that, you know, not in my backyard, those stigmatising ideas about people who use drugs. Um, and it's not necessarily centred on actual concrete evidence that um, these services are damaging. Um, but it is very challenging to be in that area. You know, there are problems. Just putting in a supervised injecting room does not resolve the issues of a large kind of vulnerable and marginalised population that already exist in that area. Um, and other things need to be put in place to also address that. Will there be more safe injecting rooms? Um, look, I really hope so. I think one of the challenges for that service in North Richmond is that there's only one. It's the only one in Victoria. It's a really important service and it's reflected in the high numbers of people that go there. But in some ways, that high number of people that go there mean that it's almost a victim of its own success. A much better approach and what we often see uh, in sort of European cities is you don't have one service, you have multiple small services that nobody even sort of pays attention to in lots of locations. So you don't have, you know, hundreds of people going each day. You have a small number of people, um, they're, you know, in their local community, they're not travelling a long way. Um, and it really kind of, I guess, diffuses some of that kind of um, negative impact of having such a large service that attracts so much attention and kind of foot traffic. So, yeah, I think there's a second site that is, you know, underway we've been waiting for the election which is now kind of passed for hopefully some more positive action on that front but again we see you know it's been proposed that it will be you know in Flinders Street we start to see the opposition of traders in Flinders Street we know that people who use drugs are already in the CBD um, and that these kinds of solutions can mean that there's less issue for public amenity because they're somewhere safe that people can inject but I'm sure it'll be played out on the front pages of the Herald Sun. <laughs> um, and I'd ask you a little bit about um, drug testing. So drug testing at carnivals and musical events and yeah. their, um, yeah, is that increasing? Is that getting the data that it needs to get more government support? How yeah. is that coming on? So, yeah, we know that our drug market has become more and more toxic over time. There's a whole range of what are called novel psychoactive substances. So these are new substances that are chemically very similar to illicit drugs but aren't yet controlled by international laws. And we get these kind of, you know, as soon as you control one substance, another new substance pops up that's not controlled. And often these substances are more potent and more dangerous. So, for example, um, the Canberra Drug Testing Service um, last week had an alert around um, metanidazine, which is a highly potent novel synthetic opioid, much more potent, I think, than fentanyl. And, you know, and there are similar um, nidazines that are in general sort of as or more potent than fentanyl. You know, this is very concerning that people are buying drugs, they don't know what's in them. This was a tablet that was sold as oxycodone, you know, a falsified oxycodone so as we you know as we see people start to go outside the medical system to seek drugs and to seek illicit drugs you know what's in those drugs is really unknown and we do see you know particularly in North America a, a, an enormous number of deaths and so drug testing so people know what they're taking and to particularly be able to identify those very potent very dangerous substances is pretty important we don't have a fixed site service in Melbourne. I've done some trials using things like fentanyl testing strips. Um, look, they can help to identify potential fentanyl, but as we have these new novel synthetic opioids like nidazines, we don't have easy kind of 
ways to test for those drugs. It really does require more sophisticated equipment and dedicated services that can test for these things. But we haven't, we're a lot further behind than, for example, Europe, where drug testing is, you know, pretty well established. Um, and there are a whole, like a whole range of different ways to do drug testing, but having kind of having some way to reduce the toxicity of the illicit drug supply and for people to be able to make informed decisions about the drugs they're going to take, you know, it is a, a core part of harm reduction. And, and I have two more questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you talk very quickly. <laughs> Sorry, I try and slow down. I do, I do talk, I get so excited. There's so much to say on these topics and I am very passionate about it. So apologies. <laughs> um, so naloxone um, becoming more readily available and yeah. being able to be supplied and family members being advised to keep them or anyone who has someone that might be impacted. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the importance and who it might be relevant for? Yeah, so this um, evolution with naloxone and the role of pharmacy and pharmacists in naloxone supply has been really exciting to watch over the last 10 years or so. Um, so um, people are probably aware as a while ago now that naloxone became an S3 medicine, so it can be supplied by pharmacists and a whole range of other services. What's just been implemented now is a Commonwealth-funded service so that naloxone can be supplied for free by pharmacists, um, and pharmacists also get paid a small dispensing fee for providing it so they're not doing the work for free, which is often what happens with these things. Um, that Commonwealth-funded program now, um, all pharmacies can register, receive stock, be reimbursed and supply naloxone. We also have a range of other services like needle syringe programs, you know, um, even sort of people who work um, with those experiencing homelessness. There's a range of other non-pharmacy services as well who can be accredited to supply naloxone and expand that reach even further. Um, so that is, yeah, it's a really exciting intervention. It does, again, bring in all of that work around trying to make sure that we supply it in a non-judgmental way and addressing that stigma because we have found in some of our research that there is a lot of stigma amongst pharmacists who are members of the general community as well um, around people who use drugs. And so trying to make sure that that interaction and providing naloxone is a positive one. Uh, we also find in pharmacies it may be people who are using prescribed opioids. Um, so it's recommended anyone receiving um, sort of long-term opioids, particularly doses of above 50 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents should also be given naloxone. So we did a, a modelling study to demonstrate that that would be cost effective and would save lives. So that's the recommendation. And there are probably very few pharmacies that don't have at least one patient receiving, you know, long-term opioids for chronic pain. So it is something that's very relevant to a broad range of pharmacies. Um, I guess some of the things that we're hearing about in terms of the implementation of this program um, it is very new. A lot of pharmacies are still signing up. We've had some issues with stock. This has been an ongoing issue with naloxone over, I guess, the past 10 years or so, even when it was prescription only, that it would often go in and out of stock. But I think some of those stock issues have been resolved. Um, we did actually have interesting story um, a while ago that there was a large shipment of naloxone that was, I think, destined for Australia that was diverted to the Ukraine because they were worried about fentanyl being used as a you know, a fentanyl attack essentially as part of the war. So then we had this fentanyl sort of, sorry, naloxone shortage as a result of not receiving that shipment. So I believe that's what happened, but it's kind of like 
you forget that these things that are happening out in the world can really affect the direct harm reduction work that we're doing here. Um, in any case, we believe that stock supply issues are being resolved. One thing that I will mention is that um, we've heard reports that pharmacists are asking people for Medicare cards to receive naloxone. And so I do want to let people know that um, with the Commonwealth program, there is no requirement to provide ID. And that's partly because people don't want to feel judged for asking for naloxone and the, the lack of having ID shouldn't be a barrier to saving lives with naloxone. So I guess to reassure pharmacists that that's not a requirement of the Commonwealth funded program. And really the goal is to give naloxone to anyone who might witness an overdose. Um, that might be family members. It might be um, people who are sort of friends or acquaintances of people who use drugs. Um, and also not necessarily just focusing on opioids. So we know with the contaminated drug supply that people who use stimulants might be sold an opioid as a stimulant and they'll have no opioid tolerance and that puts them particularly at risk. So we're really promoting very wide scale access to naloxone for anyone who uses illicit drugs for that reason as well. But um, a really exciting innovation to have that sort of non-prescription and pharmacists have already shown that they are kind of really the backbone of this program in Australia in terms of the reach and, you know, everybody in Australia, you know, 95% plus of the population lives within a short distance of a community pharmacy. So for those regional areas, you know, for a whole range of areas, it's a really important supply because we don't have harm reduction services in many parts of the country where we do have pharmacies. So I might ask what <clears throat> what harm reduction might look like in the future. So in the upcoming near future and then maybe 10 years down the track, what, yeah. how do you see it progressing? So I could talk about how I'd like to see it, like my best kind of, you know, idea of what pharmacy and, and harm reduction might look like. So one thing I would say is more treatments. So at the moment we have methadone and buprenorphine. There are other evidence-based treatments that are available in other parts of the world. And we know that you know, maybe 10 or 15% of people who are opioid dependent won't respond well to methadone or buprenorphine. It just doesn't work for them. So things like slow-release oral morphine, we have really good evidence that is um, indicated for opioid dependence in Canada, for example. Um, and there's lots of clinical trials showing that, that that's an effective option. For some people who methadone or buprenorphine doesn't just quite work for, um, slow-release oral morphine could be a good option. We have injectable opioid agonist treatments. I would love to see an expansion of those. Those are treatments that are probably only... Um, relevant for a small proportion of the population. It's not something that would be scaled up for everyone. Um, but we currently only have one very tiny, tiny trial in Sydney with injectable hydromorphone. It would great be great to see that expanded. And they've also got models in Canada where they have pharmacy involved with providing injectable opioid agonist treatment. So it's not something that might be just limited to um, supervised injecting rooms. We really need to think about in the Australian context we're a geographically kind of dispersed country. You know, it might be something that there's a role for sort of pharmacies to be involved in the provision of that treatment. Um, obviously expanding um, provision of sterile injecting equipment as much as possible. Also, we've seen some really great models of um, hepatitis C treatment where community pharmacy has been really kind of taking the lead in terms of 
um, testing, identifying people, offering testing to some of those people who might not be engaged with current services, but also potentially having a much bigger role in the provision of um, the antivirals. And so, you know, much more simplified treatment pathways where once it's determined that someone, you know, is is eligible for hepatitis C treatment, that the pharmacist can really take it from there. And, you know, we know that every time you have to refer someone someone else, we lose a proportion of the people who might benefit from treatment. So I would love to see those pharmacy-led models in Australia around harm, sorry, around hepatitis C treatment expand. I think that would really reach many people who aren't currently accessing um, hepatitis C treatment for a range of reasons. There's a, a short wish list. <laughs> um. And then I thought I'd ask you, um, so with regards to pharmacists and working with patients um, in harm reduction, is there any advice that you have for pharmacists um, about how to, yeah, how to work most effectively with patients? So I actually think once most pharmacists start working in the harm reduction space and get some experience and some exposure to um, people who are experiencing substance use disorders, they do a great job. You know, pharmacists do have a lot of empathy. They are able to provide really good quality care. Um, I guess what I would see is maybe the gap is giving people positive exposure to the range of interventions that we have. So for those pharmacists who maybe haven't kind of dipped a toe in the water and aren't familiar, um, what we often hear is, you know, quite stigmatising kind of perceptions of people who use drugs, um, the assumption that, you know, oh, you know, you know, if I provide methadone treatment, then I'm going to have all this shoplifting or, you know, all kinds of, you know, um, sort of preconceived ideas about what it might be like to provide these programs. I think often if you talk to like many of the people who provide these programs and are really experienced, they're no longer concerned with those things because they've seen through their involvement and providing those programs, how positive it can be. Um, you know, I guess if I think back to how I came into this field, so I actually did my you know, pre-registration year or internship at a pharmacy that had a methadone or buprenorphine program. But the pharmacists who ran that program weren't particularly interested. They, when I reflect on it, they were kind of probably quite, kind of had quite stigmatised kind of impressions around people who use drugs. But I, in a really short amount of time, I started working and seeing these, um, at the time we only had methadone, seeing methadone, um, people on methadone coming in every day and realizing that those daily interactions, you actually get a really kind of a very, you know, solid therapeutic relationship with people because you see them regularly and you really see them improve. People get better when they come into treatment and it's really inspiring to see how much kind of a relatively simple treatment alongside, you know, sort of psychosocial interventions, et cetera, can have such a profound impact on people's lives. And so to see someone go from starting the program to a couple of years down the track and how, you know, how much better they are in themselves and you know how much happier they feel and their quality of life I mean I think that in itself when you get that experience you know you don't actually need to sell these programs I think it's more that not everybody's had the opportunity to have those positive experiences or they've had one bad experience and it's put them off so I guess in terms of kind of stigma and improving people's kind of perceptions around harm reduction I really just think it's around maybe bringing it earlier into training I think the lack, of, you know, in Victoria, for example, we don't actually have specialist addiction services that employ pharmacists, um, you know, in clinics. 
most of our clinics have nurses and prescribers and they don't have pharmacists. So we actually don't have training placements with multidisciplinary teams where pharmacists are getting that experience and then taking that out into the world with them in their careers. So I think training placements within multidisciplinary addiction services are really important for students. They're really important for interns. Like those kinds of opportunities just get people exposure. And I think once you've worked in the field for a bit, I don't know, maybe not everyone is as excited about it as I am, but most people I think can really see the value once they've had that exposure. Um, Probably the other key thing is making sure that pharmacists are properly remunerated. So we know there's a lot of advocacy going on at the moment so that it's not patients themselves that are paying these very expensive fees for methadone and buprenorphine. And I think those tensions around payment can be quite challenging and quite off-putting for pharmacists and it's, you know, it's ridiculous that we're having this huge financial burden on patients. And it's also ridiculous that we're having pharmacists be the ones that are kind of put there as the debt collectors. So that's probably the other thing in my perception. One of the biggest and most important things we need to do is address that issue in inequity around how the fees um, are charged to the patients. We don't see that with other PBS medicines. Um, and I think that would take a lot of burden off pharmacists and remove a barrier to them offering the program because they know they'll get paid and also probably being paid properly. It's been, you know, $5 a day since the 80s. So, yeah, again, a little wish list of things that I think could really improve um, harm reduction services. Is there anything else you would like to share that I haven't uh, asked? No, I think, I mean, we've had a broad-ranging discussion. It's been really great. I, didn't, I guess, um, I don't know. I mean, the only other thing I guess I would reflect on is... Um, the opportunities as a pharmacist that I've had kind of becoming involved in this area. And I've gone from doing, um, you know, sort of clinical pharmacy work and methadone and buprenorphine um, and in community settings. And I think that that, you know, the, the backbone of, of opioid use disorder treatment in Australia is community pharmacy provision of methadone and buprenorphine, which is where I started. Um, but that actually led me to these opportunities, for example, um, I went to the UK to practice as a pharmacist for a couple of years and, you know, travel the world. And I was actually headhunted from a, kind of a paediatric job that I was doing to go and work in a specialist addiction clinic in central London because I was literally the only pharmacist that had written on their CV that I wanted to do methadone and buprenorphine. Most people say that had, have, will have it on there as an exclusion, like that they won't take a job if that's part of the job. And I was someone that was very passionate and looking towards those opportunities. So I had this amazing opportunity to work in central London in a specialist clinic doing injectable heroin treatment, injectable methadone treatment, alongside all of the other standard treatments, working embedded in a really experienced multidisciplinary team. Um, And that really kicked off my career when I came back to Australia to then uh, work at at Turning Point where I eventually became uh, the senior pharmacist there and also to get in- exposed to research. So there was research going on in that clinic with injectable um, opioid agonist treatment, for example, more you know more than 20 years ago. Um, and so those kind of career opportunities and like really my whole research career kind of came out of those sorts of opportunities that, that initially came out of just an interest in providing these treatments to, to patients in the community. And so I guess I'm, yeah... I'm really grateful for those opportunities, but also if there are pharmacists that are looking around thinking, oh, I don't know if um, if this, you know, community pharmacy role that I'm in or this hospital pharmacy role that I'm in 
is where I see myself just I guess that experience of finding a, a part a specialist area that I love and having you know an entire career that's come from kind of just just enjoying one part of pharmacy because um, I know a lot of people change careers as they go and that's been really yeah it's, it's been a great experience and a great opportunity for me that that came from a community pharmacy job. Okay. And one more, um, I guess if people, resources that are available to pharmacists to keep on top, because it seems like there's lots that are going on in the yeah. area. So are there any resources that you recommend as well? Um, so, I mean, I think most states have, um, you know, training that's provided through people like the PSA, there's online training. Um being in touch with, um, it, look, it varies a bit across Australia. Um, in Victoria, for example, we've got our area um, pharmacotherapy networks and they often provide support um, and, you know, very open to be able to, um, yeah, provide small group learning or training or support pharmacies that might want to expand their work in this area. Um, the other thing that many pharmacists don't know is that every state in Australia has an equivalent of um, what in Victoria is DACUS, so the Drug and Alcohol Clinical Advisory Service. Um, it's a So in Victoria, it's a free 24-hour phone number that you can call as a pharmacist to speak to an addiction medicine specialist and get advice. And so often you can feel like you're quite alone if you have a really complex patient and you don't know what to do. And you know, we've seen, you know, the you know, the pregnant woman on methadone who's turned up at your pharmacy from Shepparton and it's Sunday and you're like, oh, what do I do? I don't want this woman going into withdrawal, but I can't legally give her a dose right now. You know, knowing that there are specialist services that you can call as a pharmacist and get advice on how to walk through these tricky situations, um, I think they're really underutilised services. And so if people want direct clinical advice, I think that's really good. But also most of our um, most of our major conferences, the PSA conference, the Pharmacy Guild conference, also are starting to have streams on harm reduction. And those are great opportunities to sort of go along and hear a bit more about it. Um, every pharmacist that I know who works in this space is so generous with their knowledge as well. So I guess just to encourage that if you kind of are like, oh, I really want to know about that, I would be very surprised if you contacted one of the pharmacists that's known in the area of harm reduction and they didn't want to have a direct conversation and answer queries. I think it's one of those things that once you're in the area, you're so passionate about it. People are very generous with their knowledge. So anyone who's listening that's like, oh, I'd like to know more, I mean, I would welcome emails. Contact me. <laughs> but contact anyone that you know who's a pharmacist in this field. There are many of us and, you know, I think that that network of pharmacists who are interested in harm reduction is really growing I was actually thinking we should probably start to talking about a special interest group, you know, within some of our professional organisations to support that growth as well. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.